So let's bow our heads and pray together. Oh Lord, we are here this morning to learn from you, to learn about you, Father, to learn about Jesus, the Word of God the Father, who is from before the world began. As we sang, O oh Lord, every star, every planet, everything that we see in this earth was not only created in the strict sense of the term, but also fashioned with all its details by your hand and your hand alone. And you not only created all things, O oh Lord, but you hold them together. You maintain, you preserve. And as we sang by the power of your voice, so, Lord, author of creation and Lord of every man, today is day of salvation. Your word is being preached. Songs are being sung. Your word is being read. Oh, Lord, fill this temple with your glory this morning. We pray for you that your glory may be evident amongst us this morning and glorify thy name. In thy name alone, this is what I pray at this moment in the name of Jesus. Amen. The reading from this morning, as you can see, it's from Isaiah chapter 45, verses 18 to 22. Um, this is a supporting text, and uh, I would like to ask you to open your Bible in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, uh, chapter 45, and I'm going to read from verse 18 to verse 22. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together. Your, you survivors of the nations, they have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this thing long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. 
Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So I, will, uh, I would like to ask the children to come to the front. Um, All good? Okay. There's a red button here. All right. Um, let me ask you a question. Uh, it's a very simple question. Is salvation only for teenagers? No. Is salvation just for adults? No. Is salvation for elders? Is salvation just for elders? No. Very good, so you're paying attention. All right. What we, read, what we just read here in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 22, is about one subject, about salvation. And there's no more important question that anyone needs to answer. What is my state? What is my state? Am I saved or not? Because the word of the God in Romans chapter 3 says that all have sinned. Not only adults, not only teenagers, but people of your age, my age. And anybody here is a sinner. Anybody. You don't, you're not a sinner because you sinned. You sinned because you're born a sinner. That's why you sin. There is the very infant age. You are a sinner. And anyone needs salvation. But where is it? Where is this salvation? And the word of the God here says to us in Isaiah chapter 45 verses 22nd. Turn to me. Or in another translation, if you have the King James Version there, it would say, look on to me. But it's the same thing. It's not just turning as in, I'm turning. No, it's about turning and look. And it's just about look. You don't need to go to college to look. You don't need to be a smart person to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. And the text, the text say that look unto me. So there is no point in looking to yourself. There's no, you're not, you're not going to find anything in there. There's nothing good. You know, a children, a child is not innocent. Nobody is. But there is one who can save us from the condition we are. And he asked us, we must turn to him and him alone to be saved. Because the text says, turn to me and... Be saved. But, you know, think about this salvation. Salvation from what? Sin. That's the message. That's the Christian message, Allegra. The Christian message is not about, I'm going to save you to be kind. It's not about kindness. It's not about compassion. Because all other religions would offer you that. But none of them will give you salvation, redemption, 
And everyone from any age needs Jesus. And this is about his service this morning. When God sent his son because we needed him. We needed desperately salvation. And he said, all the ends of the earth. Blessed are these words, aren't they? These were said by a Jew. This was, you know, Isaiah. This is the Lord saying, of course, but it was written by Isaiah, a Jew. And he's not saying that, hey, you Jews, you come. It's all the ends of the earth. The Brazilians, the Irish, the Africans, the South Koreans, anybody, all the ends of the earth. Salvation is for the entire world and not only for a nation. And these are very blessed words. Think about it for a moment. God, thousands of years before you came into existence, were saying, look unto me. So you don't have to do 50 things or think, what am I going to do tomorrow? Or so, well, what do I have to do? Do I need to come to do this A, B, C, and D? What are the steps? And he said, no, just look unto me. And it is Christ speaking to you this morning. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And the reason he can save you and anyone is because he says that for I am God. I am God. I am in that position to save. You're not, but I am. It may be impossible to you, but not impossible to me. For I am God. And there is no other. Look on to me. This is what the word of God is saying to you this morning. Don't wait for tomorrow to look at him. Don't wait for it. Look today. Today is the day of salvation. It's not tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow will bring to you. You don't know. But today the Lord is saying to you, turn on to me and be saved. Turn to him today. He is God and can save you and can clean you completely. And bring you to a communion with him that you cannot even imagine. This is I'm, our God. is God of our salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, you are the God of salvation. And I would like to pray that we must all turn to you this morning. Because there is no other God. You are God alone. And you are the only one that who can save. There is no salvation anywhere else. Oh Lord, have mercy on us. And oh Lord, incline our hearts that we might turn to you. That we might look only to you and be saved. This is what I pray this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, um, so let's sing a song now about, uh, it's, a, it's a Christmas season, and we're going to sing a song called Joy, Joy to the World. Let all stand. No Sunday special today, so we can stand again and, and sing our next song called Here, uh, the Call of the Kingdom.
I would like to ask you to open your Bible in Matthew chapter 1. The book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. The gospel according to Matthew. Chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Here's the word of the Lord, listen with faith. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. From the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. To take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let us pray. Oh Lord, help me. This is a tremendous treasure in my hands, in the hands of the people in this building today. Help me to communicate the truth and the call on this text. And glorify your name. Fill this temple with your glory. Feed your people. Save those who are here this morning and don't know you yet. This is what I pray, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we can clearly see this, this is a text um, for all of us. Christians, of course. But not only for Christians, but for the whole world around us. It has a special significance. It's not a you know, common text. It has a special meaning indeed. And of course, you know, it is a good text to approach this whole idea of Christmas and this special season. It is indeed a special season. We don't need to go very far to see that it is a special season. It's everywhere. Um, 
And of course, we are, as Christians and everybody, we are interested in what it means and it, what it actually represents to us, what Christmas represents to us, right? And, you know, there are many ways, of course, uh, that this subject could be approached. And we in this church have been approached this in many different ways already, right? This year around the main theme of hope in many different aspects, but Hope, Christianity, not as an option in the market of ideas. Christianity, not as an alternative, but Christianity, Jesus, as the only hope for a broken society around us very close to us, for a world out there living in sin and darkness, deep darkness into themselves, complete darkness. But I am concerned this morning to look into this particular text with you. In Matthew chapter 1, as we read here in verse 18, that the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, and then Matthew starts describing, describing this undeniable fact of this special event, the undeniable fact of this special birth and this special person. I don't know, my friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, but you have to deal with this event. I don't know your opinion about this, but you have to deal with this event is a historical fact. Jesus born on a given day. And you have to deal with it. You cannot ignore it. You might try to leave yourselves like you're putting this on the side for a moment, but one day or another, either here or in, in the future, you will face him as the savior or as your judge, but you will, you will face him. And you cannot avoid this situation. You cannot avoid it. And these are the first words that we see in the New Testament. These te verses that we read are the first words. And, you know, although Matthew was not the first book that was written in the New Testament, you know, these are the first words of the New Testament as we have organized and printed for us. But before we get into verse 18, right, we must put into context he says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. But my friend, why, why, why it is important to describe this birth at all? Why Christians continuously preach about this birth for hundreds of years, for two thousands of years? Why this birth dramatically changed this society and the entire world and all the families of the earth? Why? You have to answer these questions. You cannot ignore Jesus Christ. Why do we have troubled to explain and preach to you in this church in many different ways the truth about this event? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know who he is? Of course I know who Jesus Christ is. But do, my question is, do you really know? Of 
course I know, but do you believe in him? We can never forget the first words of the New Testament. They do not start in verse 18. Jesus is a historical fact. It doesn't start in verse 18. It actually reminds us that this book, the Gospel of Matthew, is the book, verse number 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is not a, a vacuum in the genealogy of this world or in this world. Not at all. And the first question that arises in our minds immediately is why Matthew, you know, the person who wrote this gospel, troubled to give us this list of genealogy at all? Why did he trouble to do that? We see the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And so on and on and on and on for 42 generations. Why did he trouble to give that account? Why did Matthew did not start directly in verse 18 and say, Now, you know, this is how Jesus Christ came into this world. Or now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this particular way. What made him disposed to do so? And for what purpose he did this in this particular way and not in any other way? And of course he did this because in many ways this conveyed to us what is after all the essence of the Christian message, the great fundamental principles of this Christian gospel. And this is suggested to us in this very first chapter. You know, starting with this verse number one. So this is what I want to try to show you as a preamble of our text. And I think in my viewpoint, we will miss a very important point in the life of our Savior if we don't put his birth as a historical fact, as an undeniable historical fact and a fulfillment of all promises of the Old Testament. Because as the Apostle said in the Old, the Apostle Paul said, for all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, for unto the glory of God by us. All promises of, all promises of God are in him, are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God. Now the first thing that we have to remember is this. This gospel... You know, and we could notice this when we read verse from verse 18 to verse 25. Was written primarily to the Jew, right? It doesn't mean that it's not relevant to us at all. But the first target audience was, were the Jews. And, and it is not very difficult to, to discern this by, you know, the way Matthew wrote his gospel. You know, and by the outstanding characteristics of these gospels, of this gospel where Matthew refers of the Old Testament scriptures in a very different way. Matthew contains at least 40 formal quotations from the Old Testament. And these are often introduced by words, or for example, that was spoken, that might be fulfilled, that you have heard, that it was said. 
For so it is written by the prophet. This is very common pattern in the book, in the gospel of Matthew. And in our verse 22, we read the same. And it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So it is very unique and not very difficult for us to discern that, you know, there are some things in the Gospel of Matthew that point us that the first audience were the Jews. But it also represents a lot to us. So very well, um, in one sense, Matthew Gospels, it turns toward the past, towards the Old Testament, with all these messianic predictions and proclaim those predictions, those promises, those prophecies, and all of those events as in their fulfillment in the present, in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he did that, of course, I think for two main reasons. First, he wanted to convey this message to the Jews, which were you know, still not believing in Jesus. So he wanted to call their attention. You see, this Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises, of all the promises from the Old Testament. But he also wanted to convey this message to those who believed in him, but still had issues in how the Old Covenant, how the Old Testament will fit or will be fulfilled or was fulfilled in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. How, how is that? And it's, you know, we can see that a few times in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul, think about it, a Jew himself, being a Jew himself, not infrequently refers to this issue in his letters. All right? And we also find it in the book of Acts. The, the, you know, we know that the, to the Jews... This message of Jesus and him crucified was a stumbling block. The Jews had these difficulties about our Lord for many reasons. Think about it for a moment. They were Israelites. And to them belonged the adoption as a nation. The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belonged the patriarchs. All the prophecies of the coming Messiah were given to them. Were de de initially delivered to them. But unfortunately, they misinterpreted. Many of them. And the result was what, that, what they were expecting was very different from the actual prophecies themselves in the Old Testament. And obviously, what Matthew wants to prove from the very beginning is that the facts according to the Lord Jesus Christ were in perfect accord to our Lord, uh, was in perfect accord to the prophecies and everything that was written and prophesied about him in the Old Testament. And this is what he sets out to do. And he does it from this very first chapter, as we could see, from the first verse of this chapter. This person... This Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And in verse 23, as we read, they shall call his name Emmanuel. 
But this is not only the way that we can demonstrate that the Jews had these difficulties with our Lord. We can also demonstrate it as we can also find in the very end of the Luke's gospel. If you remember where our Lord, after the, the resurrection, met two Jews on their way to Emmaus. And on that walk, he expanded the truth about himself to these men. You know, these men, they were, they were unhappy and troubled because Jesus was crucified. They were troubled. Because Jesus was crucified, and that crucifixion didn't fit into their ideas of what the Messiah was to be. And they had one idea of greatness about the Messiah, but here is someone who was crucified in weakness. So Jesus had to take them through the scriptures. And as Luke describes it, he beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. From Moses' beginning, from the very beginning of the Bible, from Genesis, going through the prophets, Psalms, and all the Old Testament showing to those two disciples all the truth concerning himself. So what Matthew wanted to demonstrate here is that everything that has been preached about our Lord Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And another thing that Matthew is announcing here is that the, in this first chapter is this. The whole Christian message, oh, the whole message of Christianity is concerned about this person, Jesus Christ. In other words, Christian, Christianity, as we must never cease to remember, is not just a teaching. It is not just a philosophy. It's not merely a, a viewpoint of the world. It is not just an outlook. This is not Christianity. Christianity is essentially a history concerning this particular person and the significance of the things that he did, the things that he said, and the things that happened to him. And we have to go on and on and on and repeating this always because this is the Christian message and no other thing is the Christian message. Nothing else is the Christian message. Jesus alone is the Christian message. There have been times, speaking of Christmas, that, as you know, where some of our forefathers objected to the whole notion of Christmas Day. And even on a Christmas season, right? And I think, my view, they went too far. Uh, but they did that as a reaction to the Roman Catholicism and the whole idea of the Mass and all the wrong teaching that would come in. But there are also some that he says that it cannot, Christmas cannot even be established at all. And it is quite wrong in doing so. We cannot even be sure about the date. You know, how can we observe a date that we, we don't even know? And, and so on. But to me, I believe that both are equally wrong. Because the important thing is, we should realize that on a given day, 
on a given date, this thing did happen. That this baby was born, was called Jesus, and the truth concerning him and his birth. Now, take away the person of Jesus Christ, and you know what? You have no Christianity. You have no salvation. You can take away Buddha, and you still have Buddhism. You can take away Confucius, and you still have Confucianism. And this is on and on and on with all the so-called religious, but you can't do that with Jesus. The other things, they are not essential. It's the teaching that matters. But here, in the case of Jesus Christ, is the all the way around. There is no teaching apart from the person. There is no Christianity. No matter how beautiful the teaching is. No matter how kind you are. No matter how compassionate you are. No matter how much charity you give. No matter how frequent you are to this church or to any other church. There is no teaching apart from the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul said once in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. See? If Christ is not raised, then it's all in vain. There's no point in being here. What I am doing here in this pulpit if Christ didn't raise from the dead? If he didn't come, there's no point at all. And as he says also in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. You're still in your sins if Christ didn't come. And of course, this particular text, Paul is talking about resurrection. But the point is, if Christ is not the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, then his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection means nothing to us and nothing to anybody then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain, and you're still in your sins. But my friend, here is the historical event. Jesus came. It's an undeniable fact. Jesus came. These things really happened. After four year, 400 years of silence from God, after 42 generations, as we read here, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So think about these words. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And in verse 17 here, that's what we read. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, putting Jesus Christ as a historical event, a fact that we have to deal with. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. 
and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And after that, 42 generations, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this particular way. Now think about the beauty of these words, my friends. The birth of Jesus Christ, the promises made long ago, over 42 generations, thousands of years, how fast we are to judge God's promises. How fast are we to discredit God about his promise? Oh God, you're taking so long. How many years more? How long do we have to wait? Oh, God has forgotten about us at all. He doesn't really care. My friends, remember these words. Regardless of how, how you count your time, there is a verse in the Bible that says that now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this particular way. Over 42 generations, there were many, many promises. Genesis chapter 3, verses 15. I will put enmity between you and, you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head. And that's the reason why the Son of God appeared. As John says in his first letter, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Years later, he came to Abraham and said that in you, in your descendant, in that your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth. But we have here, my friends, and we have Irish, and we have Brazilians, don't we have South Koreans? Don't we have people from Africa? We have people from very different families of the earth. God Always fulfill his promises. Always fulfill his promises. Isaiah chapter 7. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And many others. O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You sh from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel. The ruler of Israel. Jesus Christ is no longer a baby, my friend. He is a ruler. He is a king. He is not a helpless baby in a manger. He is a resurrected king who governs the world. And you must get right with him. Because your life depends on this event and this person. People who walked in darkness have, been, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness... A light has shone. And this is just a few as we read in Luke. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus took those disciples through all the Old Testament prophecies. Through thousands of years, more than 42 generations, when the throne of David was dwindling into the family of a poor carpenter in the forgotten Nazareth of Galilee. Hot, dust, in the midst of nowhere. Then Christ shines forth. Out of it. As the apostle said. When the fullness of time had come. God sent his son. When the fullness of time has come. 
has come, had come, God sent forth his son, my friends, the fullness of time. When at the time that was previously fixed, previously appointed by the father, God sent his son. Only someone who exists can be sent. The birth of Jesus was not like any other child. Children do not exist in any real sense before they are conceived in the womb. It is the reality of all of us here. It is conception and birth that anyone here came into existence. But this is not the case about this particular person. His existence did not begin at his birth. Because the Bible says that God sent his son. The son was sent. Before he was a babe, there was a son. And although born of a woman, a teenager woman, although Jesus born as a child and assuming the human nature, we can never forget, forget that the son was sent. As the prophecy from Isaiah said, for us, a child is born, not a son. A child is born, but a son is given. The son was given. And Mary was were perplexed and troubled with the message that she would give birth to a child. She knew the divine origin of that conception. That what she says, that what we, we read in the, in the last preaching from Ken Mock here. She herself knew the divine origin of this conception, but how could she prove it? She could be in danger. But we don't find anywhere that she was torturing herself. But instead, she said to the angel, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You, God, are in charge, not me. I am your servant. We also have to remember that Joseph was equally perplexed. Try to imagine this. Man, in this room, try to imagine, imagine this. How great trouble and disappointment at the first sight. Is, is this Mary? Is this really? He must have agonized for a while about what should I do under these such circumstances. He was just a just man, a man of principles. He wanted to live according to the will of God and he took very seriously the marriage vows. He wanted to marry her. But now he's under this difficult situation. But, you know, as we read here, he said that he had resolved to divorce her quietly when he was considering these things. Give her a bill of divorce and leave her quietly. He was a strict observer of the law, a man of principle. But do you think that God's plan would be at risk because of the deeds and the plans of man? Joseph had resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, time is ticking, Joseph. She's pregnant. Mary's already pregnant. Joseph didn't begot Jesus. And this is an important thing that we must remember 
Um, and we must, uh, it had to come through the, as we saw the prophecies from Isaiah, the coming Messiah should be from the lineage of David. Joseph, the carpenter, husband of Mary. Yeah, from the lineage of David, yeah. But it had nothing to do with that conception. But Joseph, Joseph was the father of Jesus in the legal sense alone, which was also very important because through Joseph, the throne of David, the rights to the throne of David would be transferred to Jesus. And it was impossible for him to make that transition from I'm resolved to action. But as he considered these things, he fell asleep. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And you know, my friends, we cannot even predict the ways of the Lord, can we? Who knows the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? We know if we look into the Old Testament, we see that the angel of the Lord visited Abraham in the desert, Moses in the bush, Joshua in the war, Zechariah in the temple, Mary in the Nazarene of Galilee, Joseph in a dream. My friends, we cannot draw or even conceive how things would do his work. But we don't see, and this is an important thing that we have to remember. We don't see the angel saying to, the, to Joseph, Hey, Joseph, value thyself. You're a good man. You're just man. You're from king lineage. You're great. Go on, go on and on. No, my friends, this is not how God approaches people. Fear not. That's how God approaches people. These are the words of the Lord, and they are irresistible. And this, my friend, is Christmas. This alone. Nothing else is Christmas. Garbage of Santa Claus, elves, etc., they are foolish things. Christmas is about Jesus Christ alone. Alone. And unfortunately, parents are willing to bring their children to Santa. Their children, to, instead of bringing their children to Jesus. Parents are encouraging children to write letters to elves instead of teaching them about Jesus. All our culture. Our culture. We've been doing this for many, many years. My friend, I have to tell you this. Christianity has no fit in this generation. Has no fit in this culture and any other culture of the world. It doesn't matter if it's Irish, Brazilian, South Korean, Africa. It doesn't really matter. Christianity is not of this world as Jesus said when he opened his mouth once and said, My kingdom is not of this world. My friend, we are pilgrims. We are pilgrims in a foreign land towards the heavenly Jerusalem. This is not our home, my brothers and sisters. Think about eternity. This is not our home. Ah, eternity is too long. Are you saying though like those in the Old Testament? Nah, it's too long. There are no prophets among us for 400 years. First the Chaldeans, then the Assyrians, now the Romans. And God has been silent for 40 years, 400 years. But keep, to this, keep this to your heart, my friend. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. 
that he might save us. This is the Lord that we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So if you think that the true message is a joy killing in a Christmas season, you don't know Jesus. You don't know God. If parents truly know and love our Lord Jesus, why they would think that if they don't bring Santa to Christmas event, it will be a joy-killing attitude against their children. These things had nothing to do with Christmas. And our kids need to know about Christmas. Santa Claus is not relevant in any other culture of the world. And Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the one who reigns across the lands, as we sang earlier today. And the gospel is not only for Western people, it's for everyone in the world. As the promise of of the gospel and the work of Christ, God said to Abraham, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And our children need to know about Christmas. But we also read that she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Sin, the great only issue. This is the issue, my friend. Sin is the issue. This is why the the Son of God came into this world. To destroy the works of the devil. Sin. So let me ask you. Are you a sinner? Nah, Christianity is about Compassion is about love, it's about peace. No, my friend. Christianity is about salvation from sin. This is Christian message. All other religions that I said earlier has a message of compassion, love, and peace. All of them have it in one way or another. All centered in man. But my friend, that's not Christianity. Save his people from their sins. That's the Christian message. My friend, are you a sinner? Of course I'm a sinner, you would say. I'm not asking about everyone. I'm asking specifically about you. Are you a sinner individually? Do you think that there's any good in you? When you approach God, you approach like as Jesus said, the Pharisee standing himself in the temple and praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other man. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this publican beside me here. I fast twice a week. Or in your own words, I come to the church every Sunday. I'm an elder. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. I'm an Anglican. I'm a member of this church. I was baptized and on and on and on. But the publican, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat in his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me. Which of those two are you this morning? When Christ came into this world, he came on a definite mission. He approached the cross on a definite purpose. And his death was a definite death on that cross. And he secured a definite result. That is, that is what we see here in verse 21. He shall call, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not the entire world. Not every individual of the world. There is no such thing as universal salvation in the Bible. 
It's his people from their sins. His people, not the world. Do not confuse words in the Bible that are full of assurance like this one with the multiple use of the word world that sometimes you read. Because the word world in the Bible can mean many things. So my friend, the Bible says here that he will save. Note the assurance of these words. He will save. And for those that he came to save, my friends, salvation is not a possibility. It's a reality. Jesus didn't come in, in, to create a platform for salvation. To create an environment that, you know what? You, I might want it. It's, uh, it sounds like a good thinking. Well, let me compare it to the other. It makes sense. That's not Christianity. He will save his people. And none of them will be lost. None of them will be lost. That was Jesus said in John chapter 6, verses 39. I like those words when Jesus said, I tell you, men will come from the east and from the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. They will come from east and west. And there is nothing comparable to these words, right? Let, you know, let a man say, shall. But why does he say, shall? I will, says a man. But he never really does it. I shall. But never fulfills his promise. But this is not the same with God's shalls and wills. If he says, it shall, it shall be. If it says, will, it will be. Now, here in this text, we say, he will save or in other words, many shall come, but the devil might be saying, they shall not come, but they shall come. Their sins could be saying, you can't come, but God says, you shall come. You yourselves might be saying, I won't come, but God is saying, you shall come. Yes, and I believe there are some here who is laughing at salvation maybe. Or mocking at the gospel. Or scoffing at Christ. But I tell you that some of you shall come yet. And you say, what? Can you make me a Christian? Yes. I tell you, yes, for this is the power of the gospel. It does not ask your consent. It really gets it. Will you have it? It does not ask you that question. Do you want it? But it makes you willing in the day of his power. Not against your will, but it makes you willing. And at the very end here, we have one of the Old Testament prophecies about our Lord. He was the one that who should come, that should, and we should look for no other. This promise was given in a context of oppression. And in that situation, the prophet points, points the people to the look forward to the coming Messiah. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. You know, the Jews had God with them in types and shadows in many different ways, as we can see in the book of Hebrews, but never when the word was made flesh. The two natures, divine and human, in the same person of Jesus Christ, as in theology, we would say the hypostatic uni union of Christ. 100% man, 
100% God in the same individual, and that's a deep mystery. Until this day, from a creation viewpoint, we used to see God above us. That's not how we sing, sing that song. Before the throne of God above, I have a song and a perfect plea, and so on. And in the law, we see God as a judge against us. But in the gospel, it is God with us. And here, my friends, I, I come to my conclusion. And I will ask you the question, the same question that I asked for the children earlier today. There is no topic greater than salvation, than conversion. The great mass of human beings can be divided into groups, the converted and the unconverted, the sheep and the goats. But who is Jesus Christ? Do you know Jesus Christ? Some of you could say, of course I know Jesus Christ. I'm here every Sunday. But do you believe in it? Of course I believe in Jesus Christ. But let me tell you, my friend, you believe that God is one, you do well. But the devil does that as well. And shudder. The devil, don't you think that the devil doesn't know that Jesus born from a virgin? That he was crucified? That he resurrected from the dead? He knows it. So my question to you this morning is this. Are you converted? There is no more important and earnest question than this one. Do you ask yourself, am I, I'm here every Sunday, but am I really converted? Or am I unconverted? Those that are not born again cannot see the kingdom of God. Are you born again? I'm not asking if you're a member of this church. I'm not asking if you're an elder. I'm not asking if you're born in a Christian family. I'm not born asking if you are here every Sunday and so on. You can do all of these things and still go to hell. You must answer this question today, my friend. Am I converted or unconverted? But for you, my friend, who is here this morning, brother and sister, Jesus is your Christmas. Jesus is our Christmas. Don't let the culture of this world or the society around us to take his place. Don't think that the true message of Christian is a joy-killing message. Now for you, my friend, who doesn't know the Lord yet, let me tell you a, a true story about a preacher of the 19th century called Charles Spurgeon. His father was a pastor. His grandfather was a pastor. But at the age of 14 and 15 years old, Spurgeon knew he was not a Christian. And many atheist thoughts began to dominate his mind. But my friend, God put an end to his unbelief. And this is the question for you today. Are you converted or unconverted? And it may be difficult to you. And I can understand that. In that particular day, when Spurgeon was alone in that church, 6th of January, 1850, the providence of God provoked a snowstorm. He was going to a church, but the, you know, and then ended up in another church. There was about 12 people or 15 people in that church on that day. He was the only visitor. 
the minister failed to arrive because of the weather. It was the wrong church, the wrong congregation, the wrong weather, the wrong pastor, the wrong preacher, the wrong everything. And that man, you know, nobody knew who, that, who he was. Claimed, climbed to that pulpit and said, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is nobody else. And there is none else. And Spurgeon on that day looked at it. And this is my word to you this morning, my friend. Look to Jesus Christ alone. Don't wait another day because you don't know what tomorrow will bring to you. And you may have a hardened heart and you say, you know what, I know that I am a sinner, but there is nothing I can do. But you can turn to God as we said earlier today. Lord, I may be talking here like a fool. I cannot believe in you. I have a lot of difficulties, but my heart is hardened. And help me with my unbelief and say into my heart that I am your salvation. And this is my word for you this morning, my friend. Turn to the Lord. Look only to him and be saved. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, bless your word. O Lord, prosper your word and that it may have fruits amongst us. This is what I ask you in this time. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So let's take our offering now at the moment. Um, from Karen and Ramon, um, which kind of ends abruptly, um, and Ethan has done wonders by getting this up from a phone to here. So uh, at least I hope he has. Uh, so let's watch that, and then I'll lead us in prayers for others. Yes, and it just finished there for some reason, and they're already on the plane. So let's pray for Karen and Ramon, who are working uh, in Mexico. 
Father, we thank you that we are a global church. Uh, we thank you that the message of salvation is for every nation. And we thank you for the work that Karen and Ramon are doing in Monterrey in Mexico. And Father, we pray that you will be with them as they travel home. Uh, we hear their plea for Ramon that he will be cured of his cancer and that he will be able then to serve you uh, further in the years that lie ahead. We pray too for Karen who uh, has worked hard this season and has uh, given much to the work that she's been describing in terms of Bible study and uh, teaching uh, about you. And Father, the travel of going back and forward for visas and uh, Lord has taken its toll. And we pray for them as they come home that they will have a rest and that, Father, that you will give them all the medical care that they need. Father, we pray for the family of uh, Mary Carson this morning. Uh, we want to thank you for the legacy of faith that Ma Mary had and of service that she gave within this church. We pray that they will be comforted in their grief. And we thank you, Father, that she, uh, Lord, though you had given her many, many gifts and fantastic intelligence, that Mary, in the humility of her service, chose to put the church in Jesus Christ first and gave of herself wholeheartedly until she was not able. Father, we pray that you will teach us, as the psalmist says, in the light of death, to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And Father, we pray that as we've heard this morning, that we will love God, that we will put him first in our lives, and that, Father, that we will be your servants in this society. Father, we thank you for the wonderful ways that we've been able to proclaim the Christmas story for the staff and the parents and the children and friends of Sunflower Crash who have been able to hear this gospel message, for the parents and friends of our folks here within this church family, and, Father, for all those who were shopping in St. Stephen's Green, that we were able to, as it were, declare through the words of the carol the, the reality that Jesus Christ came in, a, in the birth of a virgin and lived and died and rose again. We thank you for the truth of the gospel message. And Father, we pray for ourselves, for those who will travel. We pray for those of us who will be hosting and hospitable uh, to others over this Christmas period. We pray particularly and name those that we know who are sick and weak. That, Lord, that you would be with them and that you would encourage them. And, Father, we pray for all who are tired and stressed and have been working hard, that they may find the hope that the Lord Jesus and his presence, Emmanuel, brings, because God is with us and is our ever-present help in times of trouble. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to bring our prayers to you, and we pray that you will bless us as we depart soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Folks, let's stand to sing our final carol. O come all ye faithful. Another in these words, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Thank you, folks. Uh, tea and coffee downstairs. And we do hope that you can stay and share with us.